Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, April 13th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. The CDC and the FDA advising a temporary pause on the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the U.S., while they investigate if some cases of blood clots are related. New details emerging about the death of Dante Wright, the officer involved now on leave as officials say she mistook her gun for a taser. And also in Minneapolis, the defense beginning their arguments for former officer Derek Chauvin, who stands accused of killing George Floyd last summer. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. And we begin with this, the CDC and the FDA answering questions after recommending a pause in the dosing of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The agency is investigating several cases of severe blood clots that could be related to this vaccine. And so far, they have claimed the life of one person. Lorraine Casares has all the details. Vaccination efforts in the U.S. suffering a setback. The CDC and the FDA making the decision to recommend pausing the use of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine over six reported cases of a rare and severe type of blood clot. Uh, these are very rare events, uh, but we don't know if they're linked to the vaccine and we don't know if there are other cases out there that we've missed. Um, so it's the right thing to take a pause, a brief pause, get gather some more data, make a plan. Uh, and then come back to the market. I know there are people who are going to be upset about this. Uh, this is how our system works. works. We always err on the side of safety. Officials saying they have recommended the pause because the type of blood clot reported is not on the list of potential adverse side effects that were part of the emergency use authorization. Johnson & Johnson reacting in a statement saying the safety and well-being of people who use our products is our number one priority. We have been working closely with medical experts and health authorities and we strongly support the open communication of this information to healthcare professionals and the public. So far, about 6.8 million J&J vaccine doses have been administered in the U.S. The investigation is related to six cases, all women between the ages of 18 and 48, symptoms occurring 6 to 13 days after vaccination. According to the FDA, one person has died and another is in critical condition. So I think what people need to be is, is don't freak out. I will be, I'll be living going on in my life, but I would be very attuned to my body. And if I develop shortness of breath, if I develop leg pain, if I develop a headache and I'm within two to three weeks of having had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I would immediately notify my healthcare provider. All federal vaccination sites offering the Johnson & Johnson vaccine have now closed, but it'll be up to states to determine if they follow the recommendation. The White House saying less than 5% of vaccines administered in the U.S. are J&J, and the halts will not have a significant impact on vaccination plans. And during a briefing today, the CDC and the FDA explained they made the decision quickly, even without notifying the states to pause or recommend the pause of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because the blood clots in these six cases that they found so far are rare blood clots that cannot be treated the conventional way that doctors usually treat a blood clot. So that made it very urgent to alert the medical community. Right now, states like Florida, Georgia, New York State, Washington, D.C., 
have all decided to pause the administration of this vaccine. CVS and Walgreens have also announced that they're pausing this vaccine. And so far, the FDA and the CDC says say that they are expecting more cases of these rare blood clots to show up. And they're saying they don't know how long this pause of the J&J vaccine will last. They're expecting it to last just a few days, but only time will tell what happens in the next few days and what the results of the investigations are to determine that lapse of time. That's all the information we have right now. Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live reporting. Now let's go to Dr. Adrian Burroughs. He's a family medicine physician in Central Florida. Thank you so much for your, for your time, doctor. Thank you so much. Doctor, help us understand this. What could be causing these very rare blood clots in people vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson shot? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's one of the reasons why they're pausing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is so that they can investigate what's happening with that. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is similar um, in, in how it's created to the AstraZeneca vaccine, which hasn't been approved in the U.S. yet, but has also been associated with these blood clotting disorders. And so this is the time that they're going to try to figure out exactly why it's happening. Right now, I, I, that's not an answer that I have because right now no one really knows. As of now, doctor, nearly 7 million people have already received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine here in the U.S. What should they know right now? So, so yeah, so right now we've had, like you said, almost 7 million doses administered. There have been six people total in the U.S. that we know of who have had this blood clotting event. All of the people who have had it, all six have been women. All have been between the ages of 18 and 48. So then they have to decide, were these women on something that made them more prone to clotting, like birth control pills, things like that? Um, are, there, are there other factors in play? Why only women are affected so far? So that, that's what they're going to be looking for. And right now they're pausing the vaccine. They're not removing it from the market. And that pause is to try to educate doctors and clinics on what they need to tell patients to look for, um, you know, symptom-wise, if they get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Are there any similar concerns with the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, doctor? Great question. So right now, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are holding up very, very well. Those two vaccines right now are the ones that are preventing most of the cases of coronavirus. Those two vaccines are the ones that seem, seem to be working well against all these variants that you're hearing about. So, so far, so good with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And doctor, what are the warning signs for people who receive this vaccine? When should a person be concerned and be like, let me just call my doctor? Great question again. So, uh, so I tell patients, any symptom that you think that um, is unusual, you should tell your doctor about. Specifically though, for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, if you have shortness of breath, leg pain, headaches, um, abdominal pain, those symptoms are the things that you should let your doctor know about. Um, immediately because those things could be linked to a potential clot. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Adrian Burroughs, family medicine physician in Central Florida. Thank you for having me. And now to Minnesota, where Brooklyn Center police are calling the shooting death of a 20-year-old black man an accident. Also, they saying the officer mistakenly used her gun instead of a taser, and it was so caught on police body cam. All this while community takes to the streets to protest, and Dalinares has the latest. Because they made a mistake, and then y'all call it. 
A second night of outrage in Minnesota after a police officer shot and killed 20-year-old Dante Wright. Officials calling it an accidental discharge, saying the officer meant to use her taser, but instead fired her gun. My brother lost his life because they made a mistake. And then y'all call it an accident. We don't see it as an accident. Police in Brooklyn Center say after Wright was stopped for a traffic violation Sunday afternoon, officers determined he had an outstanding warrant for a misdemeanor offense. The body camera video shows a struggle, Wright getting back into his car. The officer says, Altasia. She then pulls a gun. Firing a single shot at right. The vehicle then going for several blocks before crashing into another car. Police say paramedics attempted life-saving measures, but Wright, the father of a two-year-old, was pronounced dead at the scene. No weapon was found in that vehicle. The officer, Kim Potter, a 26-year veteran of the force, is now on an administrative leave pending an independent investigation. We cannot afford to make mistakes that lead to uh, the loss of life, and so I do fully support uh, releasing the officer of her duty. The city manager who oversaw the police department has been relieved of his duties. Wright's mother speaking to a crowd of hundreds, expressing her grief and frustration with the loss of her child. I miss him so much already and it's only been a day and I can't imagine what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day. His family calling for more action and for peace after at least 20 businesses were damaged or looted during protests Sunday night. President Biden also asking for calm. We do know that the anger, pain and trauma that exists in the black community in that environment is real. It's serious and it's consequential. Police say about 40 arrests were made in Brooklyn Center overnight. A small number of businesses looted and some officers were injured. Family members right now say they don't want to talk about Dante's past. They believe nothing can justify the way he died. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. And thank you, Andrea, for that report. And across the country, demonstrators protesting the latest killing of a black man by police in Portland, officers declaring a riot as protests turned violent. A little after 8.30 p.m. local time, crowds began throwing objects at the officers, according to the Portland police officials. And in New York City, protesters gathered at Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn last night to express their frustration and outrage over the death of the 20-year-old Minnesota man. The demonstrators then took to the streets and made their way into the road. More rallies are expected today. And back in Minneapolis today, for the first time, jurors are hearing from witnesses testifying for the defense in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin charged in George Floyd's death. The first one called for testimony was now retired police officer Scott Creighton, who arrested Floyd a year before he died. The Minneapolis police officer who pulled over a vehicle Floyd was riding in a year before that happened. He was talking to you, he was standing up, is that right? Um, I don't know if it was specifically, sometimes he was talking, sometimes he was mumbling. Uh, he was incoherent in my mind a lot of the time during there. 
And yesterday, the jury listened to the emotional testimony of George Floyd's brother, that man pausing every so often to wipe away his tears. Felonese Floyd testifying that his older brother loved his mother and that he was very affected when she passed away two years ago. He would always be up on our mom. He was a big mama's boy. Um, I cry a lot, but George, she loved his mom. He will always just be up on her. And, you know, every mother loves all of her kids, but it was so unique how they were with each other. Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, opted not to cross-examine George Floyd's brother. On Capitol Hill, Senate Democrats are hoping to advance a bill addressing the surge of hate crimes against Asian Americans, despite resistance from some Republicans. Edwin Pitti has the latest from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Lina, there continues to be great concern because of increasing attacks against the Asian American community. And that's why Senate Democrats are hoping to advance a bill addressing the situation. But there is an issue. The resistance of some Republicans, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the bill will bring, uh, he will bring the bill to the floor in the next couple of days, despite the uncertainty from Republicans who are not commenting on the proposal yet. Take a listen. In America, an attack on one group is an attack on all of us. So it's now up to all of us to stand up and speak out in support of the Asian American community. And in the Senate, we have more than a responsibility just to speak out. We have a moral imperative to take action. So this, that's why this week I'm using my power as majority leader to make sure the Senate will vote on Senator Hirono's COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. The bill was introduced by Democratic Senator from Hawaii, Massey Hirono, and New York Representative Grace Meng. It seeks to address the rise of hate crimes targeted to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders by assigning a point person at the Department of Justice to expedite the review of COVID-19 related hate crimes. Let's listen. So what this bill does is it just requires the Department of Justice to designate a person who will do an expedited <laughs> review of these kinds of hate crimes. It asks the Department of Justice to work in conjunction with the state and local law enforcement to ensure that the word gets out in appropriate language, culturally appropriate, that these kinds of crimes should be prevented, should be reported. And it, it sets up a, a, a way where we can report these crimes in as easy a way as possible. So online reporting. Meanwhile, Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas told reporters the bill is, quote, just a messaging vote, and in his words, that it doesn't accomplish much. Also, Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley added that he thinks the Senate should hold off on passing legislation until Attorney General Mary Garland completes a review on hate crimes. Senator Hirono also announced that she, along with other AAPI leaders, will meet tomorrow with President Biden and expect to announce a new White House senior Asian American and Pacific Islander liaison. We are reporting live in Washington. Carolina, back to you. Thank you for that live report, Edwin Pitti.
And also in Washington, U.S. Capitol Police Officer William Evans, who died after the April 2nd attack at the U.S. Capitol, will lie in honor today in the Capitol Rotunda. He was a member of the force for 18 years. Evans was killed when a 25-year-old man rammed his vehicle into a barricade outside the Capitol. Officers shot the suspect, who later died at a hospital. Evans will be the second officer to lie in honor this year, after Brian Sicknick, who died after the January attack on the Capitol. And the U.S. government continues to try to manage the flow of migrants arriving. At the same time, we have more details about the case of the young boy found abandoned at the border. Pedro Rojas is standing by in Brownsville, Texas with the latest. Yes, we are outside the shelter for unaccompanied minors in Brownsville, Texas, Southwest Key. This is the place with Wilton and Niel Gutierrez, the known Nicaraguan boy that we saw in this video that was really dramatic, crying, found alone at the, uh, the South Texas border earlier last week. Uh, has been transferred out now by uh, Health and Human Services authorities. He remains here and will remain here for a few days, at least for now. Uh, Nicaraguan consular authorities from Houston drove down here. They were able to speak with him via virtual video conference. They said they couldn't meet with him in person because of the COVID regulations. Right now, uh, Wilton is in quarantine and this shelter. He's awaiting uh, to be released from that process. Now, we were able to speak with the consul. He says that he found him well, uh, physically well, emotionally well. He said that he was playing. He said that the government of Nicaragua is working with the family to see if the, if the family decides to reunite him with his father, which is back home in Nicaragua, or with or the kid will remain here in the States and meet with his uncle in Florida. Now, while all of this has happened, uh, over over the weekend, the government came out with numbers saying that the number of unaccompanied minors held by Customs and Border Protection has dropped dramatically, even a half. But our observation on the ground is that unaccompanied minors are keep coming heavily, and uh, they remain, again, in CBP custody at least for more than 72 hours. And because of that, because of the fact that Health and Human Services did not have enough shelter for these minors, specifically minors under the ages of 13, we see a lot of them. And also we're seeing a lot of recycling, such as the case of Wilton, where uh, kids that have been deported back to Mexico with their parents are being sent back alone. And this is the case that we're encountering more lately on accompanying minors that have been deported back to Mexico with their parents, and now their parents are choosing to send them back. So the reality is that unaccompanied minors are keep coming heavily into the border. Now back to you. Well, thank you, Pedro, for that report from Texas. And recently, we reported on two young girls who were dropped over a border wall in New Mexico. Well, now those children are closer to returning with their mother. Border Patrol says it has released the two girls from custody after holding them for 13 days. The agency says the children are in good health. Ecuadorian officials say the girl's parents are in New York, especially her mother, and have been in touch with their daughter. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And from remote work to virtual funerals, the pandemic has changed the way we do everything, taking away the ability to work, shop, or even grieve in person. That's why this April, during National Poetry Month, the Poetry Festival Old Miami in South Florida is offering anyone who lost a loved one in the past year to participate. And joining me now is Mendori Santiago Cummins. She's the Director of Development and Communications at the Old Miami Poetry Festival. Thank you so much for your time, Mendori. Thank you for having me, Carolina. Melody, what inspired this beautiful project? Well, we produce a poetry festival that runs all month long in April, and it felt that we had to have a project that addressed a grief and what was happening um, in the current moment and what was important to residents of Miami-Dade County. So we presented this project that pairs poets with families in South Florida who are currently grieving, who have lost somebody in the past year, whether they themselves live in Miami or their loved one lived elsewhere and they were unable to travel to see them as a result of um, lockdown and the pandemic. And if anyone is interested, how does it work? Sure. So if you visit omiami.org, our website has a page called Remembrance to Order. And in English or in Spanish, you can uh, fill out information. We ask a few short questions asking about who the individual, who your loved one is, um, some insights about them, their personality, their hobbies, their quirks, um, and maybe, and also a, a beloved memory. And based on the information provided and the language preferred, um, we then find the poet within our network to write an original uh, poem in their memory memory in their honor. And the poems are free. Uh, we pay the poets to write these poems, but uh, the requesters can receive them for free. And Melody, you're the one reading the submissions. How has that impacted you? I admit it's, it's, it's been heavy. It's a really beautiful project and it feels like one that has to happen now. And it almost felt like our obligation to do this uh, for people who couldn't really have a proper celebration of life, but it's challenging emotionally. I, I only read the requests in the evening after I've done my work, after I've coordinated things for the festival. Um, and I take my time with them to try to find the right poet who I know can um, complement that person's uh, spark or, or tell their story. But it, it's, it's, a reminder, a daily reminder, um, how much loss we've had. And this project really puts a, a person behind a lot of the numbers and the data that you're seeing in the death toll. So it, it's, it's serious. It is. And when, where can the public read those poems? So right now, the poems are going directly to the families who've requested them. Some have personally asked for the poems to be anonymous. 
But those that aren't anonymous, we hope to be able to share them publicly on our website and in other print projects after the festival. And right now we're still receiving poems. We um, are going to be posting it until the end of the month. And then we'll sit with all of it and be able to do something with thought and care. It is a beautiful project. Thank you so much for your time. Melody Santiago Cummings of the Poetry Festival of Miami. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.